You want to go ahead and read the thing? I do. It's a fun thing today. All right. To be a hero of classic French romantic literature requires a few things. First and foremost, you've got to be a passionate romantic. Stolen kisses, forbidden affairs, going to extremes to prove your love, that's all pretty standard. Next, you ought to have some kind of artistic bend to you. Maybe you paint, maybe you play the cello, it's all good as long as you do it passionately. And finally, when your honor is questioned, you need to be able to reach for your blade, demand satisfaction, and leave some churlish ruffian to bleed in the street. Passionately. These are the heroes of Hugo, Dumas, Gautier, and Musset. Swashbuckling romantic, d'Artagnan, tragic romantic, Quasimodo, steadfast Jean Valjean, and the vengeful Count of Monte Cristo, all men defined by their passions and the romance. Now let's talk about the real-life woman who puts all of these fictional men to shame. <laughs> she was a master fencer who fought many public duels despite their illegality at the time and won them all. She was a prolific lover, enjoying relationships with both men and women at a time and in a way when either would have been scandalous. She was the star of Parisian opera, entertaining huge crowds as well as the King of France with a voice that had been described by a contemporary as the most beautiful in the world. She had a famous temper, loved who she wanted to, and didn't care at all what greater society thought of her. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the life and whirlwind disasters of Mademoiselle Maupin, Julie Dabonnier. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their contexts, implications, and any related sidebars we get distracted with. My name is Greg, host for this episode. And I'm his sister Ella, your co-host. Before we get started, I want to make it very clear that just like Emperor Norton, much of the facts of the life of Julie Dabonnier, including whether or not her name was actually Julie, have become intertwined with gossip, rumors, fictional accounts of her actions, and many conflicting sources. Not to mention the time she was tried and convicted as a man. What I'm saying here is that piecing together an entertaining narrative concerning her is super easy. Making sure it's historically accurate is another animal entirety, and while I've done my best to follow the sources back to their origins, the fact that there are so many conflicting accounts about her means that the truth of some of these accounts may lie somewhere in the middle. Uh, sources for this episode include Gallant Ladies by Cameron Rogers, Queens of Song by Ellen Clayton, and Anecdotal History of the Duel by Emile Colombet, among many, many others. Also, a, uh, an apology up front to our French listeners. Uh, I don't speak French. I'm going to try my best to get all these names right, but I know I'm going to butcher them, so apologies in advance. Just say them passionately. Yes, just say them with passion. All right, let's dive right in. Julie Dabonnier was born in either 1670 or 1673 to Gaspard d'Avigny. Wait, wait, wait. 1670 what? or 1673? That's quite a span. Yeah, it's a little bit of a jump. It's it's It depends on whether or not uh, certain birth records match up with certain ages at certain times. Okay. Yeah. We're off to a great start. Yep. Uh, her father was Gaspard d'Avigny, and uh, her mother I could not find. 
uh, just could not find a mention of her. We know she had to have one. Sure. Uh, Gaspar was one of the secretaries to Louis de Lorraine, the Comte de Armagnac, master of the horse for King Louis the Fourteenth. So she's like minor royalty. She's sort of. She's on the fringes of nobility. Okay. Put it that way. We love it. Her father's duties as secretary, and and keep in mind, secretary here is not somebody who like takes dictation. Secretary here is basically sort of like a lieutenant. Right. Uh, and her father's duties involved training the royal pages of the palace. And uh, Julie's taste for rebellion began young, as her father saw to it that she received the same instruction and education. Education, especially, was not something that was done by young ladies. She's going to school with the pages? She's learning the same things they are. She can't, like, sit in the same rooms with them. Gotcha. But he's making sure that everything they learn, she learns. Okay. You know what else wasn't done by young ladies? What wasn't done by young ladies, Greg? Sword fighting. Oh, that's a bummer. Now, her father began to train her in fencing for the very practical reason of keeping her safe on the rough streets of Paris. Sure. Uh, he was a gambler and a man who employed the company of women at nighttime. Okay. And her dad knew what he was talking about when with the uh, with the rough streets stuff. Wait, what was she doing out on the rough streets? Living, like this. They they were not again. They were not nobility. So anytime she would need to like walk to a market or something, she would not be accompanied. So he wanted her to know how to handle herself in case people got rough. He can't go with her? Or pay somebody Not, to go with her? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's one of those things. By the age of 12, uh -huh. Julie was uh, basically the best fencer of her age. Okay. Um, and by the age of 14, uh, the chevalier in training definitely could not hold up to her with the foil and rapier. Okay. She also began her first romantic entanglement at that age. Now, while she was considered a beauty and was certainly interested in learning more about what people could experience in the comforts of their home with the candles unlit, her father was an intimidating barrier for any man who wished to pursue her romantically. Mm -hmm. So she set her sights on his boss, the Comte de Armagnac, and the two began a relationship with him introducing her at court officially. Now, oh dear. Again, she is 14, which in our time period is a child. In At this time, uh, 14 was considered essentially a legal adult. You uh, could Still a child, though. You could get married. You could sign contracts, all that other stuff. Yes, I with am... modern understanding, she is absolutely a child, and this part makes me very uncomfortable. But uh, this, is, this is what their society was doing at the time. Ah, but daddy's boss. That is... Yep. Daddy's boss, so he can't, he can't, uh, you know, he can't tell her not to. <laughs> this whole story is making me very uncomfortable. Okay, go ahead. Make it worse. Make it work. She's got a wild, wild history. All right. Now, to give her a title and respectability, mm -hmm. the Count arranged a marriage between Julie and Monsieur Maupin of Saint-Germain-Alais, a beautiful city just west of Paris. Her new husband... Uh, was older than her and given a position to oversee the taxes of the provinces in the south of France. He left and she stayed. Now, most accounts have them having a nice friendship. Okay. Like, they were, they were cordial with each other. They were not a whirlwind romance. It was very much an arranged marriage. Um, but at any rate, the affair with the Comte 
came to an end, and Julie was unleashed on the world, a married woman, which allowed her to avoid the demands of propriety, such as they were, of being under her father's care. Mm -hmm. Around this time, she really, really, really enjoyed dressing in men's clothing, although she would wear gowns and dresses when she felt like it. Uh, she vastly preferred to wear uh, breeches and jackets. Sure. Um, which, again, was not done and in some cases was illegal, and she just did not care. Okay. Uh, she developed a bit of a taste for the wild side of life. Um, <laughs> what a shocker. <laughs> she found enjoyment in the pastime of insulting young aristocrats to sort of goad them into a duel, then humiliating them in that duel, and then informing them that she was, in fact, a woman, and they'd have to live with that. I mean, we've all been so, there, right? Young guys I mean, can be it's, pretty obnoxious. It's pretty great. Uh, while running around spanking arrogant nobles, she met a fellow named Serhan, a, uh, another fencing master, and began an affair with him. Sure. Uh, Serhan was on the run from the law. So here comes more of that romanticism. Oh, boy. Uh, he had wounded a man in, in a duel, and that man later died. So the lieutenant general of the police was on his trail. Now, duels uh, are legal or illegal at this time? Illegal. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> They are illegal, but they still happen all the time. Okay. Uh, so Sehan and Julie ran off to Marseille. And while there, uh, they picked up an act to make money. Basically, what they do is Julie would sing, and Sehan would do some sort of uh, fencing exhibition. <laughs> what a combo. <laughs> right? And then uh, Julie basically surpassed him in his fencing skill very, very, very quickly. And so the show basically became just her singing and doing fencing numbers. And she, again, preferred to dress in men's clothing, mm -hmm. which was practical for the fencing. But she was not attempting to pass as male. She openly advertised that she was a woman, mostly to add further excitement to the dueling. Sure. Uh, one night, that. after performing some incredible feat of swordsmanship, a man in the audience started heckling her, saying that she must be a man because no woman could fight like that. Julie's response was to set down her sword and open her shirt, asking the audience to judge whether or not she was a woman. Classic. Her voice was captivating, according to accounts, and she was urged to audition for the musical academy of Pierre Gautier, mm -hmm. a friend of the composer Jean-Baptiste Lely. Uh, she had a beautiful contralto voice that stunned Gautier, and despite being untrained, was accepted on the spot. Okay. Her professional debut was in Marseille, and this was another great revenue stream for her. She didn't have to show off her fencing in taverns and inns when she'd make much more with, by just singing. Around this time, she also ended her relationship with Serhan and began to take on a new romantic challenge. She had come to enjoy the attentions of the young ladies who mistook her for a man due to her dress. Mm -hmm. And she soon struck up a romance with a daughter of a local merchant, described as a beautiful blonde young woman, in contrast to Julie's own darker coloring. Okay. The young lady's parents found out about this and immediately packed their daughter off to a convent. I mean, wouldn't you? This is... No. This is <laughs> someone your teenage daughter should not be hanging out with. <laughs> she's got like nine jobs. She fences. She's been through half a dozen men. Mm -hmm. She's married. She dresses <laughs> as a man. <laughs> she's, I mean, she has goodness. a beautiful contralto voice. She does, too. Apparently, very, she, and apparently she was very beautiful to look upon as well. 
I'm uh, sure now, she was. Okay. Julie could have written some heartbroken poetry or embarked in a drunken rage across town. Why not both? But instead, no, she took a third option. Okay. Uh, she went to the convent, took the holy orders herself, and entered the convent to continue the relationship. There you go. Thinking <laughs> so, outside the box right there. That's what she did. So uh, the two of them uh, made the relationship work as well they could Well, you know, under the watchful eye of the nuns. Oh, boy. And uh, after some time, an elderly nun passed away. So Julie saw this as her chance to uh, make her big getaway. Okay. She disinterred the corpse. Okay. Placed it in her girlfriend's bed and set fire to her room, uh, which then spread to much of the rest of the convent to cover their escape. Okay, there's there's a lot going on here, huh? <laughs> there's a lot there, right? So a few months later, the young lady returned home or to the convent, depending on which source we have. Mm -hmm. And uh, Julie was tried in absentia for the crimes <laughs> of kidnapping, body snatching, and arson, as well as failing to appear before the court. I mean, all of those are pretty bad, but the... <laughs> The arson and the dysentering, I think, is the worst. So she was found guilty and sentenced to death by burning, fittingly enough. Okay. Uh, but those charges and punishment were for a Monsieur Davigny. Oh, now, they don't know who she is. Well, that's one of the theories. Whether they because whether because they genuinely thought she was a man, uh -huh. or to cover up the scandal of the ladies having an affair. So this is the long con. Okay. And keep in mind, during all of this, all of the stuff that we're, we've already talked about, all of the stuff we're going to talk about, mm -hmm. she is married. Right. <laughs> yeah, she's a very respectable right. married lady. I get that. She is. She is. Uh, so Julie went back on the run, paying her way once again by singing in taverns and inns while making her way back towards Paris. Okay. One night, she was putting her feet up in a tavern when she was joined by three young men at her table. One of them insulted her. She insulted him back. Words were exchanged. And before long, the four of them were out in the tavern's courtyard with swords drawn. Uh, apparently, she absolutely wrecked them, yawning while she did so. Oh. And Ouch. ending the duel by running her rapier clear through one of the young men's shoulders to the point where he could turn his head and see the blade behind him. In a very sporting gesture, she helped get the three men she just thrashed to the local barber to get patched up, and she went to bed. The next morning, feeling a little bad about the whole thing, she inquired to their well-being, especially the man whose shoulder she'd run through, and the barber assured her that they'd all recover, and told her that the young man was a noble, Louis-Joseph d'Albert, son of the Duc de Luin. One of Dalbert's friends sought her out to apologize for the drunken insults that he'd made and begged her forgiveness on his behalf. Uh, she told him that she would respond to Dalbert in person. That hmm. night, she put on a dress and went to go see him in the room in which he was recovering, and she did not return to her room at the inn till the following evening, thus beginning what by all accounts was a very loving and supporting friends-with-benefits relationship that would last the rest of their lives. So this duel is actually a meet-cute. Is that what's going on here? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I love that energy. Sword sword through the shoulder. Yeah, apologies. <laughs> what what a way to meet. Uh, he, uh, Dalbert was recalled to his military unit a little while later, and uh, Julie continued to wend her way back towards Paris. 
Now, since she still had a death penalty on her head, she yeah. was worried about actually entering Paris. So her next stop was Rouen, where she met another guy, because why not? Why not? Uh, this was the singer Gabriel Vincent Tenevar, also on his way to Paris to pursue a career on the stage. Both were remarkably gifted singers, and they supported each other's dreams of the Parisian stage. So Julie decided to get out from under the death penalty once and for all. How? The two of them entered Paris with Julie in disguise, and she went to her old friend, the Comte d'Armagnac. Okay. Uh, they greeted each other fondly, and she told him her concerns. He brought the matter to the king, and the king annulled the verdict, apparently kind of finding the whole thing hilarious. I mean, <laughs> through a certain lens. I mean, if you're the king, you're looking anywhere for entertainment sure. at this point. Okay, well, it is uh, a good story. Now, finally free to pursue the stage, she did so with gusto. Tenevar had blown away the people at the Paris Opera, the Académie Royale de Musique. They had hired him on the spot. He secured her an audition, and though the manager of the opera, Jean-Nicolas Francis, was unimpressed at first, he finally came around and hired her. <laughs> she debuted on the Paris stage in the role of Pallas Athena in Cadmus and Hermione to great acclaim. She would go on to play Minerva, Medea, and Dido, goddesses and queens, as befit her. Now, keep in mind, at this point in her life, she is about 20 years old. Boy, she's really crammed a lot into those she's packed formative a lot of living into teenage those years. years. Yeah. Okay. Now, on stage, she would be referred to as Mademoiselle Maupin, or simply La Maupin. It was operatic tradition that all women, married or not, would be referred to as Mademoiselle. Okay. One cannot stress the reach of her fame. She originated many operatic roles and was regarded as the lead of the opera from almost her debut onwards until the end of her time there. Wow. Um, also of note is the opera Tancre, composed by André Camprat. He wrote the lead part of Claudine Day specifically for La Maupin to sing. Hmm. I mean, you know you've made it when they're writing an opera for you. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. And, of course, she began romantic entanglements with her fellow operatics, working her way through the sopranos, altos, and contraltos with a joy and vigor that surprised many of them, but it all seems to have been handled in good humor. Uh, there's not a trail of broken hearts or bitter ex-lovers, just a lot of people glad to have the experience. And is there any sword fighting in these relationships? Oh, we're getting there. Okay. One fellow member of the opera who was not happy to see her mm -hmm. was the tenor Dumanil. Now, he was described as a completely horrible man, one whose ego and arrogance vastly outstripped his talent, and who enjoyed propositioning the ladies of the company in the coarsest and rudest ways possible. Huh. One night, he made some vile statements to Mademoiselle Rochois, a friend and lover of Julie's, before insulting and making leering suggestions to two other women. When he got to Julie, she warned him to think about what he was about to do. He said something vulgar to her, and she told him he probably shouldn't have done that. That night, dressed in her customary men's clothing, she waited for him outside his residence. She returned his insults and challenged him to a duel, which he refused. Hmm. Now, when he refused... She said fine and beat the crap out of him with her walking cane oh. and took his pocket watch. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next day, 
when uh, he showed up at the opera, he told everybody about how he'd been assaulted by three burly men and how they'd beaten him and robbed him of his watch, at which point Julie held it up, called him out for being a liar and a coward, and informed him in no uncertain terms she'd do it again anytime she felt like it. He tried to complain to the opera managers, and they basically laughed at him. I mean, she does have a certain style, doesn't she? She's got a real... She's got a... Shall we say panache? <laughs> a flair? <laughs> a gift? We love to now, see it. Now, her next, her next major public incident occurred at a court ball given either by Louis XIV himself or by his brother. Okay. Uh, Julie arrived at the ball, of course, dressed in her best chevalier suit and jacket, but again, not hiding that she was a woman, just mm -hmm. preferring to dress that way. And she immediately became smitten with a beautiful young woman. She insinuated herself between the woman and her other suitors, and the two of them danced with each other for much of the evening, finally culminating in a passionate kiss in the middle of the dance floor. Another meet-cute. This was too much for her three suitors, and they said some things, Julie said some things, and they all headed outside to settle this like people who carried swords around to settle things. Either one after the other or all three at once, Julie defeated them, uh, and returned to the ball, at which point she was called before the king. He reminded her that dueling was illegal and had her escorted home. Escorted home, not arrested. Uh, well, with the, with the understanding that he would make a decision about what he was going to do with her the next day. There's a lot of dueling in a country that has made dueling illegal. Yes. Doesn't it feel like there's kind of an abundance of sword fighting here? I mean, Sure. Okay, just, so, just an observation. <laughs> <laughs> so the next day, uh, she did receive her judgment. The king had ruled that while it was illegal for men to duel, the uh -huh. law didn't say anything about women, so... There it is. We got our loophole, boys. <laughs> so she was free to duel as much as she pleased. Okay. Uh, she then went off to Brussels to enter the opera there and struck up an affair with Maximilian Emmanuel, the elector count of Bavaria, mm -hmm. one that ended badly uh, with him sending a purse of 40,000 francs to her Roman orders to leave Brussels. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we've all been there, right? Uh, she responded by throwing the money back at the messenger and leaving on her own terms back to Paris. Okay. While back in Paris, her husband, remember him? Oh, I had uh, totally <laughs> forgotten she was married. <laughs> Has he been off collecting taxes this whole time? He's been off managing finances, yeah. Okay. Uh, but he had been recalled, and the two began a genuine friendship and gentle love while she continued sleeping with whoever she damn well pleased. Uh, and the two of them were very fond of each other right up until his death in 1702. Okay. Now, it was shortly after her husband's death that, ironically, Julie met the love of her life. Therese, Madame la Marquise de Florensac, okay. considered one of the most beautiful women in all of France. Uh, her affections were returned, and this was not a whirlwind quick affair. The two would live together in what was described as just utter bliss and love until... Florensac's untimely death by fever oh, in no. 1705. Oh, man. Yeah. That's not, Very... not a lot of time, is it? No, it's not a lot of time to have with somebody. Poor Julie. And, and Florensac's death kind of broke Julie. Uh, her, her days of dueling ended. Mm -hmm. She would sing no more in the opera or anywhere else. She became a recluse, either re-entering a convent or staying at her estate until her own death two years later. 
keeping true to romanticism. She died of a broken heart at the age of 33. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Packed a lot of living into those. Yeah, I thought she was. I thought you were going to say she was in her late 70s. Nope. Okay. 30s. Yeah. Early 30s. Now, over a hundred years after her death, the French romantic author Gautier wrote a novel called Mademoiselle de Maupin, incorporating aspects of her real life with inventions of his own and using real-life names for the characters in her actual life in a completely fictional plot. Mm -hmm. Um, Small sidebar, this book's preface is where the phrase art for art's sake comes from. Cool. Yeah, thought that was neat. Uh, The book was never intended to be a history. It was intended to be a celebration of love, regardless of gender, having the heroine enter into a relationship with both her male and female suitors uh, and living quite contentedly. Due to this, uh, the book was banned by the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice and many others. Yeah, we can't have that. Although uh, it was fairly popular in France. Of course it was. (laughs) Well, the book is a fictional invention. It did revive interest in the historical figure, though her real life became muddled by the rumors that persisted from when she was alive until long after her death, which is one of the reasons why it's so hard to pin down the truth of her life. Mm -hmm. Incidents may be true, romanticized, or downplayed, but no matter what, Julie Daubonnier, Mademoiselle de Maupin, was an amazing woman, fearless on stage, in a duel, or in love. And that's her story. All right. So, a question for you. Sure. This is a podcast about disasters, and I feel like she had some (laughs) successes. (laughs) Pretty good ones in there. (laughs) I mean, even if, if, I don't know, 30% of what you told me is based in the absolute truth, yeah. That's still a pretty amazing life. Are there any situations that you feel like constituted a genuine disaster for her? Uh, definitely the burning down the convent incident. That was yeah. something where she she was sentenced to death over that. Mm-hmm. And um, if it hadn't been for the fact that she had... See, this is the thing about her life, and this is one of the things I found most interesting about her. Mm-hmm. Um, TV Tropes has this trope called Refuge in Audacity, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much her life. It, you, it was illegal to be a duelist. Okay. It was illegal to dress in clothing that didn't conform to your societal gender. Okay. It was illegal to have sexual relations with people who were of your same sexual identity Mm -hmm. uh it was certainly illegal to burn down a nunnery (laughs) yeah i can i think that last one is where i fall most heavily on the side of (laughs) propriety there we'll leave that one out for a minute (laughs) the clothing the girlfriends that's fine but yeah burning down a, a convent is pretty bad but the dueling the girlfriends and the clothing mm-hmm. it's like all of those if she had just done one of them mm-hmm. she would have been you know arrested and we never would have heard of her but the fact that she did all of them <laughs> sort of was like well we don't know what to do with this she's untouchable and she had i mean she she did have very very high connections sure and it it worked out in her favor um the fact that the king also thought she was you know pretty funny just helped mm-hmm. so I mean, you can't execute somebody if the king says you can't execute them. Sure. But yeah, I would say uh, that, I mean, 
she also wasn't always lucky in love. She definitely had some paramours that were bad choices for her and mm-hmm. people she either had to uh, like break away from or uh, relationships that turned toxic or things where she had to, you know, pull out her sword again. <laughs> um, but I feel like that know. was that was always kind of option A or B for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If the kissing yeah. didn't if work out. <laughs> If I can't seduce you, I'm just going to stab you. Yeah. If I can't stab you, I'm just going to seduce you. Like, uh, she she was very good at both, apparently. Okay. Well, we all have our own <laughs> special skill set. Um, and we yeah. have no idea who her mother was, really. That blows my mind. I I could not find out who her mother was. Hmm. Um, and that may be because some of the sourcing is, like, old and in French, and I couldn't read it. But... Uh, yeah, I, I looked and looked and looked, and I could not find her mother. So uh, for our listeners out there, if you know who Julie Dabonnier's mom was, uh, drop us drop us an email. I feel like she was maybe found in the forest. That's the vibe <laughs> I'm getting. She was, she was not of woman born. <laughs> she was a changeling. <laughs> okay, uh, that was absolutely wild. Yeah, it's a wild story. Mm-hmm. Here on Relative Disasters, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our story today, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to share some insights we missed or just shame us publicly. You know you do. Why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. Okay. A special thank you to our patrons who support us at Relative Disasters Podcast on Patreon. This week's episode was brought to you by Shira. Shira! Who invented spam email back in 1996. Oh my gosh, where would we be without that? Right? Thank you, Shira. Speaking of our wonderful patrons, uh, we are preparing to launch our very first extended sidebar. That is a bonus episode for Patreons only. If you are interested in hearing a shorter... Less fact-checked, more fun... Way less. Actually, not fact-checked at all. Um, (laughs) A little more conversational, but we hope still interesting. Uh, So these are short episodes where we talk about the interesting things that we come across in the longer episodes that we research these are just they just don't fit either thematically or time-wise or they would completely derail completely derail <laughs> the episode the and episode. we would be yeah. talking for two yep. hours about shoelaces so yeah. that's an example um, sure. so yeah those are going to be available to patrons only and then in october november when we go on break we're going to release those episodes to the world if you are not into Patreon, uh, just wait a few months and you will get them all. And if you don't want to wait a few months, uh, you can, of course, join our Patreon. Um, what is the first uh, extended sidebar on, Ella? So the first extended sidebar is about something I came across when I was researching the Roanoke colonists. It is a okay. hoax. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is both so simple and so effective, you will be astonished and... Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's goofy. <laughs> um, it's one of those things that you have to hear, that you're going to hear, yeah. and you're going to think, oh, they made that up, and you're going to look it up on Wikipedia, <laughs> and you'll be like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Uh, so, yeah, if you would like to join us for that story. Please do so. Head on over to Patreon, and we'll see you there. 
And that episode will be coming out, we think, May 1st. Uh, yes. Is that right? As as long as I can figure out how to actually post that up on Patreon. Yes. <laughs> it's a new thing. It's a new thing. We're getting we're, there. We're, we're learning. We're, we're learning working. as we go, just like everything else with this podcast. I know. Thank you for sticking with us. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. On our learning curve. And, and thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Well, Greg, we've had some heavy disasters recently. Yeah. Uh, uh, we are lightening our palate <laughs> with this story, and I have another lighter story. Well, actually, okay. I thought it was a lighter story. It turned out to be pretty distressing in some places. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about the hoax of the Piltdown Man. Oh, awesome. Yep. That is amazing. I cannot wait for that. All right. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.